Hey there, educational rock stars. Are you feeling overwhelmed with lesson planning for your English language learners? Well, I've got some exciting news for you. Introducing our upcoming free webinar, Simplify Your Approach, Three Time-Saving Routines for ELL Success. Join me for a power-packed 45 minutes that's set to revolutionize your teaching strategy. In this webinar, we'll dive into three practical, easy-to-implement routines that will not only enhance your ELL teaching methods, but also save you hours of planning time. Yes, hours. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, these insights are tailored to help everyone make the most of their teaching time. Plus, you'll leave this webinar ready to implement these routines the next day. So mark your calendars for our two upcoming dates. I don't want you to miss this opportunity to transform your ELL lesson planning. To reserve your spot, simply sign up at www.equippingells.com slash routines. Trust me, your future self will thank you for it. I'll see you at the webinar. Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Boucher, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. Well, welcome, Chris, to the show. I'm super excited to have you here today. Hi, it's it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. We've met a little bit through the internet. You got to love the internet these days. And Chris has a YouTube channel. We can link it in the show notes and does a great job of explaining and helping other teachers learn more about supporting their ELLs. And she's also just recently became a member of Equipping LL. So we've been able to chat a little bit inside the membership as well. So we're glad to have you on the show and in the membership. It's great to have it. You have so many great resources and I've always got your things from TPT and this year. I said, you know what? I need the community. I'm covering two grades this year because we had someone leave. And so I was like, I just need some extra support. So good. That's the best part of equipping LLs is the community for sure. All right, well, let's dive in. Today, we're going to be talking all about language acquisition, which is so important for us to really understand the process. But before we get into that, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your experience with education and what you're doing right now, because you have a lot of experience working with ELLs. Yeah, so I started teaching English over 20 years ago in Brazil, my native country. I taught English as a foreign language, all ages and levels for over a decade there. And that's where I got my master's in applied linguistics, specifically looking at the role of play and storytelling to learning a foreign language. And then I moved to the U.S. to marry my American husband. (laughs) And here I got my reading license and I have about 10 years of experience of teaching English as a second language or a new language here. 
Three years, I taught ESL in a family education program for adult immigrants who brought children to their to this program. Then I did five years of ELL in an elementary school, and the past two years I've been in a middle school doing eighth grade, and this year I also doing seventh grade. I have also taught both graduate and undergraduate courses for the ENL program at the local university here in Indiana for five years now. One of the courses that I used to teach there is the practicum for ENL candidates, where I basically coached students one-on-one on how to teach English learners in different grade levels and content areas. And the current course I teach is called Psycholinguistics for Teachers of Reading, where we look at applications of linguistics for teaching English learners, especially reading. And I have been doing that for the past three years. Wow. Yeah, I I was just asking Chris when she has time to sleep, (laughs) but that is amazing. How rewarding all those different opportunities you had to work with, not just the students, but the families as well. So thank you for all you're doing. Yeah, it was really enriching to work with them because you get to see the whole picture, you know, like the the parents adapting to a new country and, and that program specifically work with like helping them help the children at school, you know, like having them learn about the American system. So I got a lot of insights doing that. Very cool. I, I would love for more and more schools to have that opportunity for parents to really connect as well. That's great. All right. So let's dive right in because we have a lot to talk about. Let's begin with defining what language acquisition is and why it matters. Well, language acquisition is the natural process of learning a language that happens without any conscious effort or any kind of direct teaching. Think about how you learned your first language. There was no formal instruction, and yet somehow you learned it. But the question is how? How did it happen? It happened through repeated exposures of frequently repeated words and sentence structures in meaningful context. And the key word is meaningful here. A while back, Stephen Krashen explained how this works by posing the concept of comprehensible input. What he says is that language acquisitions happens when we receive messages in another language that can be understood either orally or in written form. In other words, we pick up the combinations of sounds that have meanings attached to them, also known as words or chunks of chunks of sentences when we are able to understand their meaning in context. The input of those combination sounds, words, short phrases, have to be somewhat comprehensible to us in order for us to learn them, or in his terms, acquire the language. So just to give you an example of that, if parents use the word bottle over and over again with a baby and they actually hold the object, point to it, make different mentions, like mentions of that word, then they're making the that combination of sounds, bottle, comprehensible to the child and possible to acquire. Now, if I'm in a classroom and I'm saying the word bottle over and over again to students, but I don't have any visuals attached to it, there's not a representation, it's out of context, even though I taught the word many times, it it doesn't mean that it was learned because it was out of context. It didn't mean anything. The meaning was not attached to the word. What a great example. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
you asked me also why it matters. So this is exactly why it's important to understand language acquisition, because if you understand that somehow there's always the meaning of a word or phrase of a sentence or the sentence structure has to be attached to the words you're teaching, you know, to what you're trying to teach, that will make a difference. It will actually change your mindset. Absolutely. And this is something, you know, I, if you've listened to previous episodes or Inside Equipping LLs, I'm very passionate about us learning language through context and content, because when we have that involved in the language process, exactly as you're saying, that's when our students are going to understand it. That's when it's going to take root. These standalone ways of teaching vocabulary are really not doing anything for our students. It's really just kind of wasting time because, I, yeah, exactly with that example, you could say the same word over and over again. You could define it. But if you're not giving them a visual support, you're not using realia, you're not putting in context, it's just a random word that they aren't understanding. So I love that example. Yes, and one of my one of my graduate students shared with me a statistic that they got in a in a training that said that it takes seventeen contextual exposures for a person to learn a language to learn a word versus seventy without wow. the context. Wow, yeah, so that wow. shocked me. <laughs> yeah, that is huge. I I hadn't heard the second part of that. I've heard the first part, but. Wow. And I think sometimes it's hard for us. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. We spoke English at home. I never was exposed to another language until I moved here to Panama, besides in school, of learning Spanish. But I think sometimes it's just hard for us to really understand all that goes into learning a language if we haven't experienced that ourselves. And so why is this important for teachers to understand, you know, the language acquisition approach? And what are some things you're observing with that? Okay, so I think the most important takeaway of getting a better understanding of how languages are learned and the importance of context, the importance of having always meaning attached, making messages easily comprehensible, is that, like I said before, it will change your mindset. If you know that students need multiple meaningful exposures to words and sentence structures to learn the target language, you probably won't ask them to look up the definition of a word in the dictionary, ask them to memorize it, <laughs> and then quiz them and consider that they learned the word because they were able to repeat the dictionary definition. Yes. Let's please not you know. do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So these, this kind of routine and other things that are similar, teaching things in isolation or random words, you know, they do not really promote language acquisition for English learners. They require memorization skills, but it will not promote language acquisition. And this is actually, this kind of issue is actually why I started my YouTube series called How Languages Are Learned and It's Progress and it will be a while because I do one episode here and there when I have time. But it's because I think there is a systemic issue of lack of knowledge that of how the language of acquisition process works by several teachers and administration. And then what happens is when, when students start to underperform, they are usually referred to special education, to reading remediation services, when in fact the errors, the kind of situations that what they're showing or not showing is due to the language acquisition stage that they're in, 
you know, or that they are moving towards and not, not necessarily special education or reading. They're not really struggling with those things. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's, I mean, it's very, we know it's very hard, you know, when we have language involved to figure out really what's the core of what's going on. But I think you're you're right in that. If we're not really identifying which language acquisition step they're in and then seeing what's, you know, appropriate of their response at that, at that level, are we doing what we can to make sure that they are continuing on um, and holding some responsibility on ourselves for that? You know, we really could misdiagnose some students or just push some things on them that it's really not the appropriate response. Right. I just actually, my last video about morphology, because I try to connect with linguistics, talks about like the order of the morpheme acquisition and how a lot of those, uh, if the student is not there yet, when they do a, when they, they are assessed through a, via like a running record, how those mistakes will be counted. And however, they're not just there yet. So that video, you know, if you want to check it out later, it, it really details like what's the order. And then also I mentioned a study that was done in California about reading records and errors for with English learners in particular. So that's a really interesting study that they did that shows these kinds of things. That is fascinating because, yeah, I can see absolutely how reading records could be a huge misdiagnosis of our ELL students, you know, in multiple ways. So I would be interested definitely to read that. We'll post that in the show notes to your video. So those who are interested can go check it out. Hey teachers, I'm interrupting this episode to ask you a quick question. How different would your life be if you could confidently plan effective and engaging lessons for your ELL students in a fraction of the time? I created my membership equipping ELLs to do just that. When you join, you gain instant access to the exact resources you need, proven and prepped for you, plus a supportive private community of like-minded educators. Join us today at www.equippingells.com. Now back to the episode. So, Chris, can you walk us through the steps of language acquisition? Sure. So, language acquisition is considered to have six stages, with the six being the closest to proficiency, almost like native-like proficiency in the target language. So, the first stage, more known as level one for those in WIDA states, is called entering. This would be the newcomers, those students that have none to very little knowledge of English. They actually could have also been born here in the U.S. and just living in a a household that does not speak. So a lot, but not all of the students in this level will go through a silent period in which they do not talk, but are acquiring language still. This stage is characterized by expressing language through words and short phrases gestures and pictorial representations such as drawings, choosing pictures from a Google search, pointing to words and pictures, and etc. In terms of vocabulary acquisition, students at this level should be able to learn and express, after a few months obviously, everyday and content words that are used consistently in school. 
This could be high frequency words or sight words. I just learned the difference in one of your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but primarily words with high, highly visual meaning. Words like water, bathroom, you know, the everyday words. Those are expected. We can expect them to learn them quickly. There will be a lot of copying and labeling and writing as well. And I, I want to add that they should be highly encouraged to start writing simple sentences, but with the support of sentence frames, because they're not just there yet. But we can't just look at, like, there's several charts, if you look it up, that says words, phrases, and then never push them to the next level. Because we say, oh, this is what they can do. This is what they, you know, we need to always, actually, always when I plan things, I try to look at the next level. And add, and I want to do a, a a plug here to your materials because they do that. The newcomers, is, it doesn't keep them on the word level. It moves them to the sentence level. They have to put words in order to make a sentence. They have to complete sentences in, in, a, in the reading books that you have. You know, so I really like those because they push the students up without overwhelming them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm super passionate about, you know, setting high expectations, but giving them the scaffold they need in order to be successful. So moving on to the second stage, level two for reader states, that stage is called emerging, where they start to construct, construct simple sentences independently Still with some strong level of support, but not as strong as when they are level one. A lot of their sentences will still be hard to understand because they are in the beginning stages of learning the English syntax, the word order in sentences. So a lot of their mistakes may be because of the influence of syntax of their native language. It is very likely that they could be still trying to translate word by word in their heads when speaking and in writing. And that's those are the times when we hear sentences like, this is a flower blue, for example. You know that in Spanish and in Portuguese, my native language, adjectives come after nouns usually, but that's not the case of English. But that's how we can explain those errors. Mm -hmm. In terms of vocabulary, you can expect to see them using general language to content areas, in content areas, that is words with generic meanings that are appropriate in many contexts. An example of a general language would be the word rain. Now, in the third stage, level three, is that is called developing. In this stage, you can expect students to produce simple sentences independently and start to work on compound and complex sentences, but with some inaccuracies. They will also venture into paragraphs of them, attempts, but they could potentially be too long or too short. When those attempts to produce more complex sentences fail, that's when their spoken or written expression may become incomprehensible. But for the most part, the majority of the message will be comprehensible. In terms of vocabulary, students start to use specific language that is more precise language and therefore not as commonly used as general language. If we take the general language example I just gave you, rain, students at this level could start referring to it as showers instead of rain. So moving up one level in terms of the sophistication of the word. However, their vocabulary is still expanding 
So you, you can expect to see a lot of the same words being used over and over again, words that would be considered more general language due to the lack of knowledge of more specific and or technical vocabulary. Now at stage four, a level four called expanding, there is a lot of sentence variety in students speaking and writing, a lot more compound and complex sentences, paragraphs are being used more accurately, and there is emerging cohesion within and between sentences. There is more intentional and varied used use of transition words and conjunctions, and the use of specific language seems to be mastered, and there is an attempt to use more technical words, even more precise vocabulary. For example, if we go back to our example of rain, in level three, there you can see some examples of like shower, and at this level, they could even start using the word precipitation. So the language progress, you know, the sophistication progresses. Yeah, the complexity as, is escalating. Mm-hmm. Yes, as they go up. So although the use of technical language like that is is sporadic, it's it's still there. You know, they're using it, but it's sporadic. It's not mm-hmm. as um, consistent. as consistent mm-hmm. yet. So they're starting to play with that. Yeah. Their messages are highly comprehensible, although there may still be some errors due to the influence of the first language, such as the example of flower blue. There's still that might still be going on because of the influence of the first language. Of course, we want to teach them about the syntactic structures of the English language, but we have to remember that they are translanguaging, so it's important to do so. You know, we want to correct them without devaluing their native language. The fifth stage, the infamous level five of WIDA, where they pass and they stop, you know, they exit the services, they reach proficiency, is called bridging. In this stage, they are there are beautifully constructed sentences and paragraphs that show cohesion and organization of ideas. Technical language is used more consistently and texts and oral messages are vastly comprehensible. So at this level, they're close. And then the level six will be native-like proficiency in academic areas, vocabulary and sentences. Awesome. That was so helpful to go through each of those stages because, you know, many of us, I'm sure have heard them, we're familiar with them, but it's always nice to have that reminder of just the differences, those really, you know, important differences between each stage. So Chris, let me ask you, how can we help promote this awareness, this knowledge, applying the stage that our students are in, in their language acquisition development? How can we promote that in our schools with all of our different levels of ELLs? What are some things that you do for that? So I think if we keep in mind that the exposure to whatever it is that we're teaching, we're trying to teach them is has to be done in a meaningful context, that's like the overall an overarching tip that I that I apply to my teaching. So for example, with newcomers, we know that one students, we know that they need visuals, that they need a lot of visual support a lot of sentence frames. So exposure for them would include lots of visuals, audios, simple sentences, always with meaning attached to them. As they go to the, the in the second level, there will be also still visuals. 
But I've tried to focus a little bit more on exposing them to simple and compound sentences in context, you know, so I I try to move them up because my goal for level one is to teach visuals, you know, to to teach vocabulary and and simple sentences. For level two, I'm also working on the vocabulary, but I'm trying to push primarily compound sentences so i try to but i try to bring those in meaningful context you know so then i look for books like i really like some of the saddle books that they have for middle school now you know they have lots of pictures vocabulary in context several repetitions of the same words and also the sentence structures I think at level two, it's important to expose them to simple transition words and basic conjunctions and have them speak and write about pictures, story, and even some informational texts. I like using simple three or four sequencing cards, reading and writing recipes or steps in a simple scientific experiment or even steps in a math problem. The main thing to have in mind is that they will need exposure to acquire the word to acquire the words and sentence structures, but also practice to boost and accelerate the language development. You know, so Crescent talks about like comprehensible input and how it needs to be meaningful, but I also like to add the practice, the meaningful practice as well, because I I feel like it, it accelerates the process. For level three, exposure will include visuals to a lesser extent and a lot more exposure to written and spoken text in which compound and complexes, complex sentences as well as specific vocabulary will occur. I want them to read and listen about more content area related topics, but also to produce spoken and written text using those more complex sentence structures and vocabulary. I will teach more specific and some technical words for this level and also teach paragraph structures, text structures to push them towards the next level. For levels four, I still use visuals because they help, but there's much more exposure to complex text. Along with those texts, I like to promote academic debates and assign different roles in the debates. We do a lot of like word work explorations, working and trying to figure out the meanings of words by studying prefixes, roots, suffixes. And then vocabulary instruction consists of identifying and using technical and vocabulary, technical vocabulary and written compositions are expected to be complex and lengthy. So in the process of the going back a little bit to the debate I just mentioned, they have to research and you know about the topic reading complex text they have to take a position so i divide like i usually divide my classes in smaller groups and then two or three students work together and they have to come up with arguments and then they have to present i there's there's one visual from that i well i don't know who is it from but i know katie top on twitter she she shared that it's called accountable count accountable talk and it has like different roles in a discussion that people can have and what i do with those is like in her paper she has one of each color and then i have chips that match those so i give that to students and when the discussion happens, as they put in the chip, 
you know, as they do their part, they they put, place it in the middle and then we trade. So I try to do lots of things that they have to talk, but they prepared. Otherwise, they're just going to use general language, simple sentences. So I have them prepare reading, writing about the subject. And then I also have roles during that interaction. Right. So, what a great idea. I love that with the, the matching chips and just holding that accountability for everyone to participate is wonderful. Yeah. So it, it was re- it's really good. They like it and, you know, they have fun. It's the beginning that the, the researching part is a little yeah, more takes- tedious to them. But <laughs> once it gets to the once they realize what they're capable of, really is what is where the magic happens. Yes, I love that. What a great idea. And did you have one, I think one more for five? Yeah, for level, so for level five and six, they need similar things to level four, but just pumping up the the complexity of the mm-hmm. texts and the vocabulary exposure. So more technical vocabulary and really looking at more abstract agent nominalization and things, this these characteristics that, um, these things that, that the features of, even more complex academic language. That's great. That was super helpful. Thank you, Chris, for that. We only have a few minutes left, but you know, as you were talking, I just had one question to clarify because I know if you know if we have some new teachers of ESLs that are listening, and sometimes this can get confusing. Can a student be in different language stages depending on the domain? Yes. Most definitely. That's usually what we see when we get the results from WIDA or from, you know, other results. We see that they are at the different levels. And that can be usually the domain that takes the longest to to develop is writing. So they listening usually is the first one because it's a lot of exposure. Reading sometimes follows along depending on the instruction, actually, that they receive. It's either listening or speaking, I mean, sorry, reading or speaking that happen, and then lastly, writing. But I think it's because the writing, I don't know, in my experience, I feel like it's it's so complex that a lot of times we try not to overwhelm students, and that comes last, you know. And what I try to do in my instruction, it comes from the beginning, I have one one of my videos on YouTube also talks about anchor the anchoring strategy, which is like when you teach a word, you show it, you attach to a picture, attach meaning, you know. So I always try to bring writing in the foremost at the front of my instruction with newcomers, and I always am trying to teach the next level of writing for them because otherwise we don't challenge them. Yeah, you know? yeah, and to remove that you know, that fear that some of them have of, oh, I can't write, it's too hard, you know, but just little by little making them right. feel confident. And also that made me, your question made me think of something that in my experience, I've noticed that some some years students are really great in listening and then the next year they fall. And um, I don't know, like if it, there's an, you know, like we think, oh, they're great with listening. So we don't need to do listening. Yeah. And then they fall. And, yeah. As things get more complex and they haven't practiced that. Right, exactly. So that's why it's important, even though they are in different, they might be in different levels in each domain, it's important to keep them all there because you don't want to, just because they did, they got a six, you know, the Mexican score in one domain, 
you say, okay, they don't need this. So I'm not going to do that right. because that's not how language works. <laughs> exactly. you know, it's the combination of all the domains. They work together to develop the language actually. Yes. A hundred percent agree. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Can you share where we can find more about you for those that are listening and would like to see your YouTube? What's your channel called? It's called Chris Howard. It's C-R-I-S. And then Howard is H-O-W-A-R-D. And that's my that's my name. Yeah. That's Great. The the- and we will put a link in the show notes. So if you want to learn more from Chris, you can go check her out on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.